Welcome to SAS Talk with Kim, your sustainability action series podcast highlighting how local governments are leading the way toward a more sustainable future. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren. I've spent the last 16 years working for and with local governments to help them create resilient, inclusive, thriving communities. I started this podcast series to connect you with the key people on the ground putting sustainability into action in their communities. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to SAS Talk with Kim. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren, and have a very exciting guest for you all today. The one, the only, <laughs> Kristen Baja is here with us. She's the Climate Resilience Officer for USDN. Welcome, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we are so happy to have you, and I know probably a lot of our audience members already know you, uh, either from your role with USDN or in your previous role with the City of Baltimore, uh, or even before that, weren't you in Ann Arbor before that? So uh, you've been making the rounds. Um, But what we're going to talk today is really about resilience and specifically resilience hubs, um, which of course we know you have a ton of experience with. It's been a growing interest level. Um, But why don't we start first, I mean, you're working with USDN now, who has over 200 local government members from across across the country and Canada too, right? That's correct. And so this is a new position with USDN, the resilience officer. So tell us a little bit about the impetus behind getting it started and kind of what your role is specifically. Sure. Uh, So USDN has been focused in uh, sort of three main areas, I would say over the last um, few years is really looking at uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction and, and sort of the um, deep decarbonization efforts, um, social equity, and um, uh, thinking about uh, racial justice and, and inclusion. And then also around this um, concept of uh, climate adaptation and resilience and how are we looking at the synergies and opportunities between all three. Um, what we've seen with increasing number of natural disasters and impacts to um, local governments all throughout, I would say, the world, um, is a need to start accelerating the pace of action um, around our resilience and adaptation work. And so um, in the last few years, uh, I've been playing a role as a co-chair on the Climate Resilience um, Committee within USDN and was asked about a year ago to come on board full time to take on the role of directly supporting uh, local governments within the network uh, to take action on climate resilience, be able to um, focus in sort of four main areas, which is looking at our existing plans and projects and structures and being able to integrate resilience and, and climate change into those. Uh, Also looking at accelerating our pace of action, because like I mentioned, we're a little bit far behind and and needing to catch up quickly with our impacts. Uh, Thinking a lot around um, connectivity and collaboration, especially with all of our amazing partners um, out there that are doing incredible work and how do we take advantage of of their skill sets. And thinking about metrics and our sort of cost benefits and how are we thinking about it more comprehensively rather than just focusing on economics, how are we bringing in um, social, environmental, and all these other factors. So my role is really to directly support local governments interested in taking action in this space and to accelerate our pace of action collectively. And of course, I think it's probably safe to say that those local governments that are USDN members, of course, are more on the cutting edge of doing this work, right? So they probably are thinking about it more. Are there, Can you give us some examples of the types of support you're asked to come in and deliver? Sure. 
Uh, so we have a lot of local governments who are pretty far ahead and then some that are just getting started. And I think that's the beauty of our network is since it's a um, peer collaboration and connectivity network, we're here to support each other no matter what phase of the work that we're in. So you have some uh, really progressive uh, local governments that have been working for a while on resilience and folks like uh, Seattle that are actually using a social equity lens for all of their climate planning and integrating it into their climate action plan, their climate um, adaptation plans, and thinking about community-led plans. So that's really uh, cutting edge. We've got a lot of great work that's happening in areas like Washington, D.C., where they're thinking about resilience audits for buildings and um, areas like Hoboken in New York City, who are designing resiliency guidelines for development. And then we have other municipalities that maybe don't have that support or not our bigger vanguard cities, but are, are actually at high risk and doing some really amazing things with training of their staff on climate change. So both Fort Lauderdale and Salt Lake City have actually required um, climate, uh, climate change training for their staff, which has been really incredible and actually led to a lot of uh, amazing opportunities uh, for bringing in other staff members. And we have folks who are, are thinking about a lot of other lines on policies and codes and integration into comprehensive plans. Um, Minneapolis and Boston have both been great examples of that. So just great work across the board. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned, you know, the need for accelerating the pace of action. And it, it's so true. I, I always think back to when we first started when I was at ICLEI and we were working on developing the Climate Smart Communities Program. I mean, this was in like 2006. Mm -hmm. And when I would give presentations about climate change impacts, about adaptation, it was really hard to find photos that would connect with people, you know. And now it's such a sad state of affairs that, I mean, you could literally have a 50-page PowerPoint with new photos every day okay. uh, from all over the world. And so for me, that's been one of those areas that I've been like, really, it's scary. And we are hearing more and more from local governments um, across the board that they need to be thinking about this. And for some communities, it's it's kind of been the gateway to talk about climate change, right? Like some of them weren't prepared or felt that they needed to talk about climate change from a mitigation lens. But now with the impacts that everyone's experiencing, it's kind of forcing the subject in those places that maybe prior to wouldn't, wouldn't have it. Exactly. So one of the things that comes up a lot uh, in working with our clients is, you know, we've had a lot of communities be talking about resilience hubs. Mm -hmm. um, so I know this is something that you kind of uh, helped develop in Baltimore. I wonder if you could just give us that overview. Like when we say a resilience hub, what do we mean by that? Sure. So a resilience hub is really a uh, well-trusted and well-utilized community serving facility. Um, to be successful, they actually have to be uh, supporting residents and helping with coordination of communication and resources before, during, and then after an event. Uh, they are intended to be year-round facilities that are used as neighborhood centers community building and uh, enhancing community adaptive capacity. They, in the event of an emergency, will host things like supplies and direct communication, resources, be drop-off spots for uh, extra resources, et cetera. But the real intention is to think about how are we building up community adaptive capacity year-round and supporting uh, this idea of shifting power away from government and into hands of people so they can react and respond on their own uh, and have the ability to do so. Um, it, a lot of times we 
believe that folks can do that, but they don't have the resources, the funding, the um, ability to actually put aside a can of food each day or uh, have clean water. And so what these are attempting to do is actually fill the gap that is there uh, to help folks be able to collectively and year-round build their relationships, to check in on each other, to take care of each other, but then also to have a trusted space that they already go to that can help them in the event of an emergency. So in many ways, it's really also about kind of building that that human connection that, frankly, we used to have, right? A couple generations ago, you always knew your neighbors and hung out with them and took care of them. And now we've kind of gotten away from that, but it's kind of getting back to that that human connection, really. Exactly. And that's really important. I think one of the um, main things is when we looked at the example from Chicago with the big heat wave and looking at the two communities in the south side of Chicago and how one had uh, no people die during the heat wave because they had a very strong community where folks were coming out and hosting block parties and taking care of each other, checking in on each other. The community nearby uh, had essentially the same socioeconomic status, but just did not have that community connectivity. And we had many people die in that situation. So uh, community adaptive capacity really is focused on relationships and relationship building and checking in on each other, but also um, caring and knowing things about your neighbors, like you were saying. So it's, it's critical to what makes a resilience hub different than just a solar plus storage project. There are other components as well, but I think the community and relationship building is a, is a critical piece. No, and I think that that, I mean, I know studies have shown and like you're indicating like that human connection is so important. I feel like, especially now, we're so quick to jump to that technological advancement, right? It's always the technology or the engineering that's gonna save us when in many cases, just connecting with each other as humans in recognizing, hey, we live next door to each other, we're in the same neighborhood, like we may not be the same, but we have that in common. Right. Right, exactly. it seems to get lost, and I think in a lot of the conversations. Um, right. So I think this is really important that you're talking about this. Um, this has come up a lot. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar here in Massachusetts, there's the Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program. That's been going on, and we've actually worked with a couple cities on their MVP process, and it's been very interesting because here you've got um, core stakeholders, so you know, municipal officials, uh, public safety officials, the police, the fire, public works, but then also, um, you know, maybe the Council on Aging, maybe um, you know, the the grid, you know, the national uh, national grid or the utility, but they're all having the same conversation, and the big thing is, hey our emergency responders can't get to everybody, like period. So talk to us a little bit about kind of how these have been tested. You gave, I mean, you talked about Chicago, just the example of the human connectedness. But first, let's say, who's got resilience hubs? Which cities have already implemented these? Yeah, so resilience hubs are um, are really interesting because I don't think that they are actually... uh, all municipal led. I think actually the value in them is that it it takes a wide range of partners and the intention is to um, shift power away from government and into hands of other stakeholder groups, whether that be a faith-based organization, a a community leader in a neighborhood or a set of community leaders or a nonprofit organization. The idea behind them is uh, really about Yes, government is stressed. Government has too many demands. And when you have these sort of really intense events that 
are changing uh, and a lot of folks are not ready for them at the government level, they may not have the resources to be able to respond to everybody. I can give an example um, in the Mid-Atlantic region where I live, we had what was called Snowmageddon. We're not used to the snow you have up there in Massachusetts. And so we had seven feet of snow uh, that we just did not have enough of the trucks to clear and it took days, I mean weeks for us to get out from under that. And honestly, you know, this is what happens in government. We clear the biggest roads first and the evacuation routes, and then we get into the economic centers. And so when you think about that, um, the neighborhoods are left until the very end. And a lot of people didn't even have shovels to be able to get themselves out or uh, people with disabilities, uh, elderly. So I think it's a lot about um, understanding that, that resource stress and how we want to shift that power. And it's happening in a variety of ways in a variety of cities. Uh, right now we're working uh, with the city of Miami and they have a really strong network of groups that are coming together, uh, like Catalyze Miami and some of their foundations and then even some of their local community leaders who are taking advantage of the fact that they need, they need to react and respond and nobody's doing it. So they're gonna take it on themselves. There's a really wonderful woman um, named Valencia Gunder from the Liberty City area who just decided after, I believe it was Irma, don't quote me on that, but um, she created this Community Emergency Operations Center. And right now it's not completely a resilience hub. It's got a, a little bit of a different concept, but the idea is in, a, in the same thing. And she's running that and working now with the city to try to identify other locations with Catalyst Miami, with the county, uh, that would be sites that people would go to and trust. So we're certainly seeing movement in places in Southeast Florida, um, certainly in San Juan, where we're seeing a lot of um, post-disaster, post-Maria support coming in, but also support from the local community level and people within the universities and the local institutions actually supporting this from the ground level uh, because government's having a hard time with allocating resources there. Um, we're seeing some great work in Washington, D.C., where they have an equity advisory committee in one of um, in Ward 7 that's actually prioritized resilience hubs as one of the main things that the community members on the advisory committee want to see. And so they're identifying certain buildings for the feasibility of the sites. And then some great work in areas like Los Angeles and, and Minneapolis. So it's, it's across the board where we're seeing, but we're seeing a lot of different attempts um, and how this is done because it does require different partners and it does require uh, different stakeholder groups to be involved. And so what would be the role of a local government to kind of foster this? I know sometimes it's just happening organically, but for sure there's maybe private foundation money or I know in some cases the cities have helped get it started, but then it needs to become self-sufficient. What, what is a role that if a local government wanted to kind of spur this kind of action in their community, what would be a step they could take? Well, it is, it's obviously going to be um, being willing to shift some of that power over to community and for there to be a coordinated effort within city government uh, departments. So looking at the emergency management office and thinking about emergency management has funding for outreach and engagement. They also are very connected to 911 and 311 and the need for police and fire. Um, these centers reduce the burden and the need for those respons responders. And so there is upfront funding that is available and coordination that's available from a communications perspective that can come from emergency management. 
Um, same thing with health department. These sites can be used in the event of extreme heat or extreme cold. Uh, they help a lot with um, sheltering, uh, not necessarily overnight in a lot of cases, but just in place or pl places people can go for heat and, and cooling. But they're also great year-round locations for accessing healthcare initiatives and screenings and flu shots and other things that are going to help with overall health and well-being within the community. Um, it connects to other departments who are focused on potentially doing job fairs or financial programming um, and support. Uh, stormwater management, getting people to be able to be trained on how to take care of clearing their drains or maintaining street trees or helping with green infrastructure projects. So, so many other, so many departments within a city can benefit from these by having them uh, be able to streamline their initiatives through them, streamline their sort of communications and outreach work, but then also to support it from some of their budgets that are around outreach and engagement that sometimes are really dismantled or disconnected that allow them to come together and think about one sort of message that is we want to shift power to the community we want you to be able to um, build a stronger neighborhood to be able to react and respond in the event of an emergency to be able to recover quickly and quite honestly become better uh, in the event of any disaster to thrive amongst these conditions and to have better jobs, better access. So there's a lot of opportunities, I think, for more cohesive and connected uh, implementation and support from local governments. It's also going to potentially be things related to the buildings uh, that are available, um, the resources that are available. Uh, there's a lot of different pieces and moving pieces with a hub, and you've got to be able to keep them going. So there's even training that's already free that a lot of local governments provide that these would be perfect. For example, community emergency response team training is usually provided by a city or a county for free or sometimes by the state. Those are excellent trainings to give to some of the community leaders who would be helping run these sites. Yeah, I know a lot of our clients have been promoting the CERT training and trying to get more and more folks excited about it. Um, we actually were in Northampton the other day, and the one of the guys who runs one of the library branches was talking about, um, they had a huge ice storm in like October of 2011, and it put power out because there were still leaves on the trees and there was so much ice. I mean, the power was just out for like a week or something. And as you were saying, they kind of became like an informal little shelter for during the day because they had power, they had the generator, they had heat, they brought food in for people. So they would come and kind of have those, have those connections and really be having a place to go. So I think in some places we are seeing it organically, right? I think it's more of how can a local government really be proactive and make sure that it's covering every neighborhood. Right, and I think that it, it needs to be for local governments that are interested in this, um, identifying where there's the most need uh, and the most support. So it, it's quite honestly around, uh, we have vulnerability to a lot of different hazards, but we also have um, social vulnerability based on a lot of what has happened with redlining practices, policies that uh, support um, keeping white people uh, and in one area that has more uh, access to resources or evacuation routes and, and quite often uh, minority or, or um, in my neighborhoods, it's, it's African-Americans out of uh, the space where they're able to react and respond or have access to resources. So understanding that connection to um, vulnerability and not just vulnerability to the disasters themselves, but also sort of the social factors that play in, the economic factors that play in, and how that ties to our 
policies and practices that have been in place for decades uh, that have led to certain uh, groups not being able to react and respond as easily um, and, in, and recover as easily as, as other groups. I'm so glad you brought up the equity piece because it is so important um, in all the work we do these days. Um, thank goodness it's, it's a necessary discussion that I think has been not had for far too long. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to kind of dive in a little bit to what you said there. So if you have a community that is thinking about, um, you know, prioritizing um, where they would, you know, identifying the need essentially mm -hmm. and looking at some of the, you know, climate related hazards, then social vulnerabilities. What is that extra step for them to take to go back to really thinking about some of this systemic stuff that, you know, like if you're the new sustainability planner coming into town, you might not be thinking about that. Um, what is a good way for them to, I guess, open their mind and have some, what are the questions they should be asking themselves to get to the to the answer of, yeah, this has been a problem and I might not have seen it. I know it's not an easy question. But. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it, it's actually just acknowledging that it is a problem, um, regardless of where you are, that it, it's not like one community um, just happened to be a community that wasn't um, racist or prejudiced. Uh, it, it's, it's nationwide, it's, it's worldwide. Um, and so just to go in with um, I, if this is your first time as a sustainability planner, somebody new to this work, acknowledging that, doing some extra reading, going and getting equity trainings, um, understanding the history of the development of uh, your municipality or, or, you know, and, and why its development pattern is the way it is, what the policies have been, and, and connecting it to the federal policies as well. You know, there's, there's not really anywhere that's escaped the Federal Housing Administration policies and, and what happened uh, post-World Wars uh, around access to um, housing and, and land. So I think that there's a personal responsibility to educate oneself, uh, to be continuing education uh, through training, but then it's also we have to listen. And I think that's really what is missing out um, it's often this mentality that we believe government comes in, does something, gets community approval, check the box, and then moves forward with the process. The reality is that's probably the worst way to do planning. It needs to be thinking about relationships, um, thinking about listening to people. They're the ones who are experiencing on a daily basis what's happening in their neighborhoods and truly listening, not leading the conversation, but actually giving a space where folks can feel comfortable, where they can feel safe, where they can express how they've actually experienced situations throughout their entire life and maybe um, in multiple generations. And being able to take that information, not be defensive about it, digest it, and then ask how they can collaborate and work together to facilitate the next steps. Uh, and seeing community members and community partners as integral and necessary partners throughout the entire process. That's a great, great response. So thank you for that. I think that'll be really helpful for our listeners to be thinking through how to really do this. Um, so kind of along the equity lines, but also kind of getting to kind of the resilience hub structure. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we're going to want to make sure we're being consistent as far as 
you know, the quality of the building, wherever it is. But then we want the community to kind of decide what it is in the off season, if you will. <laughs> right. I mean, the idea is that this is a place they want to go to on a regular basis that just so happens to also be their kind of shelter or ability or their place to, to shelter, um, to hold goods and things like that. So what are some of maybe like the top five things that, you know, are an absolute must have for a resilience hub to be successful? Well, um, in, in uh, the mind frame of what I just said, I think it's asking the community members what are the most essential uh, criteria for them. We have gone through this um, process a lot with a lot of community members uh, within uh, Baltimore, DC, um, Puerto Rico, um, other areas, and sort of identified a checklist of um, these are things that we feel are most critical based on what community members have said, uh, but the understanding that that could shift and change. And so there is a much longer list of these are also potential things to consider. Um, ideally, these sites should be able to handle when the grid goes down or there's no power uh, that they can have um, uh, essentially uh, uh, not be a microgrid, but be able to function um, with, that, with the grid down. And so we are trying to promote the synergy of uh, climate mitigation, climate adaptation, and, and equity. Uh, so thinking about these sites as demonstration for solar projects um, or wind with a battery backup component and also understanding if we're going to go for resilience, which is about 72 hours of power, uh, to also have sort of a hybrid. So the understanding that there is some sort of generator right now based on our technology that has to be incorporated into that. So that is something we, we really look at is the feasibility of uh, solar with battery backup systems and sort of what we're calling these hybrid systems. Um, a must is storage for supplies because there really is the need to have backup food, backup water, uh, blankets, materials. Um, often a kitchen is a really good thing to have, although not always uh, have to have. We have a site where, um, unfortunately for people, they prioritize the MREs. I don't know if they've ever eaten the meals ready to eat, but they're... Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they prioritize those over the kitchen. Uh, I think maybe later on, if we have a big event soon, they might put a kitchen in. Um, but then also things like basic, basic medical supplies, um, storage. Uh, we have some sites where you need to be able to put people who are maybe going through heat stroke or having some sort of medical condition, so separated rooms for that. Um, really thinking about people with disabilities. Um, so ADA accessibility is, is important and often on the East Coast, that's really hard to achieve in a lot of buildings, especially our old community centers. So considering those retrofits as part of the um, projects. So there's a lot of components, a lot of things. Uh, you know, we say that having games for kids, um, fun things that keep people entertained, uh, chairs and tables, all of those things are sort of critical components, but uh, there are some that I think are more important than others. I think that's a great overview. And yeah, for sure, you want the community to kind of make those decisions, but it's also nice to have some of your technical expertise say, mm, you sure you want those ready-made meals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Think about that one. Um, so that's great. And so I guess taking it to the next level is what have you seen as far as kind of the sustainable financial structure for these things? Right. So right now, because so many of them are in sort of pilot phases, uh, it seems to be that philanthropy is really supporting them, whether it is from a local community organization that's taking leadership, um, a community member that's taking leadership or city government. 
there has been a lot of support from philanthropy to be able to pilot these projects and see if they work. I think there is really this need to start looking at uh, some of our budgets and our operations and management maintenance budgets and thinking about where can we pull money, um, like I was mentioning before, from outreach and education, from sort of the emergency management, the health department, general services, uh, energy, all these places where we're going to see the multiple benefits of a site like this and bringing little bits of those together to create sort of a resilience hub pot of money for communities. Um, there also is a way to bring in private funders. I think that there's a really um, excellent opportunity to look at connecting with some of our hospitals or local institutions that are sometimes housed in these communities uh, that can play a real role in providing supplies, ongoing um, providing of supplies, potentially uh, partnering where they could assign a medical um, nurse or, or somebody who can help with that sort of first response to be assigned to the site in the event of an emergency who lives in the community or are within walking distance. And um, understanding that there's, there's potentially a lot of opportunity with our NGOs as well. So just, it's sort of so early, right, in exploring yeah. this and the um, funding at this point has really been reliant on, on philanthropy and we're really, really grateful for that opportunity to be able to pilot and look at uh, these these hubs as 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 they're functioning, but I think it will eventually need to turn into how does government work with all the different stakeholder groups and identify we creating these sort of resilience hub uh, pots of, of funding that will help maintain them or keep them going over time. That's great. So, how many pilots just would you guess that you that are, are going on right now? At least that you're aware of, maybe through USDN. Well, uh, I think there are about 12 municipalities through USDN that are actively working on this from a city government with um, uh, different stakeholder groups. I do know that there are also some that are being led by local community members or NGOs that uh, have the same concept. I mean, it's not, this is being heard across the board from community members as we saw post Katrina, post Sandy, um, post Maria this is what folks want. They're saying, you're not getting to us in enough time. We're having people either severely injured or die, or we're not getting the resources. I mean, even an example in New York City, where all of the resources that were delivered post-Sandy went to this Ikea in Brooklyn, um, in Red Hook neighborhood, but they weren't distributed out to the neighborhoods. And so it actually took community members using their cell phones and coordinating on bicycles and other means to get the resources out to the neighborhoods that needed it the most. And so it's understanding that there's that sort of collaboration and that connectivity that's, that's needed. And the same for us here in Baltimore when we had the um, the derecho, which is the the big wind event that came through during our heat wave, we lost power for seven days. Um, that was a huge wake up call for us when people could not get out of buildings and we didn't have first responders there in enough time. Uh, so it's it's being more proactive in that space. It's thinking about some of these opportunities to bring in all these multiple stakeholders. Awesome. Well. I think we answered all my questions. This has been super interesting. I feel like it's always so exciting to talk about action, right? Things that are happening. We've identified a challenge. We've now seen some communities, you know, start, you know, having success with these resilience hubs and now everybody else wants to try it. So to me, that's kind of the benefit of, of the network um, like USDN and others that perpetuate this. It's always been the, 
don't reinvent the wheel. Hey, we tried this and it really worked. This is what you should do and make it easy for each other to really work together. I think kind of that's what this is all about. So is there anything else you want to add? Well, I mean, like I said, because this isn't in a pilot space, I think there are a lot of lessons being learned. Um, USDN does have resources that are available. Uh, we have been working on supporting local governments. So there's a white paper that can be used by folks to help in understanding what the difference between a resilience hub and a solar plus storage project would be. Um, we do have a technical feasibility assessment that folks can use so they don't have to hire a consultant each time, but really go in and sort of understand how do we understand if our site's good for solar and if we can put storage and if it makes sense financially and how can we connect it to uh, potentially community solar and making it a benefit to the, to the greater community. So there are some of those resources. We're also in the process of creating a business plan that helps people go through identifying the criteria, the opportunities for funding, some of the outreach. And then we're also working on um, a training to be able to train folks on how to activate the sites so that it's local community members or um, local groups that are helping with sort of facilitating that. And it's connecting a little bit to emergency response, but I think in other ways it's about how do you activate a site and keep it going year round and bring in all these other initiatives and at the same time have it be able to be enhanced for these uh, other capacities and abilities. There are resources out there, a lot of great partners working in this space and we're trying to bring them together to make sure that folks can benefit as much as possible. Yeah, and I want to make sure folks can easily access those resources. The those are on your uh, innovation innovation projects, right? Site the USDN. Correct, and I can also send you some links um, if you would like to. But they are on our innovation uh, site, as well as a lot of other wonderful materials that the uh, a lot of our members have been putting together. Yeah, so folks should check that out, USDN.org, and you can just search for the innovation under projects, I think, and we'll put it on the blog post. Kristen, well, as always, it's a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much for joining the podcast today. I think this, like I said, I, I love this topic and I just love seeing actions and testing it out, you know? So we've got a couple clients that are trying to get some funding to do these. So we're looking forward to hopefully helping them do it. Great start seeing results. So I hope thank so. you for all that you do and for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Kim. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Thank you for joining this episode of SAS Talk with Kim. You can listen to other podcasts in our sustainability action series at sastalkwithkim.com. Remember that action is the key to your community's sustainable future. What will you act on today?